If you type humanities and classics, click search, and then choose to read the news section, you will see that there is a fierce, extensive debate about the role of classics within the humanities and in modern education more broadly. Um, I'm interested in this debate because I'm not happy with how much of the classical canon I've read. Uh, the more of it that I read, the more I discover how much I still haven't read and uh, need to read. Welcome to another episode of Eclectic Intellection. Uh, in this episode, I want to explore the debate about the role of classics, and I'll do that with Eric Adler. Uh, who recently wrote a great book on the subject. It's titled The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. Uh, and the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Eric Adler is a professor and the chair of the Department of Classics at the University of Maryland. So let's start with how he developed an interest in the classics. My first exposure to classics was taking high school Latin, which I did for four years. I went to public school. And to be honest, when I was in middle school, or what was then called junior high, I wasn't especially interested in classics. I didn't know anything about it. But in my town, there was a man who was known as a master teacher, who was the Latin teacher in the high school. And so I decided to sign up for Latin, not because I had any particular interest in the subject matter, but rather because I was told that this was the best teacher at the high school. I mean, he was just people uh, uh, packed into taking Latin as a result. And I turned out to like it more than I had anticipated. I had sort of a beginning that was a little rough and so forth, but ultimately I ended up liking it a fair amount. And so ultimately decided to do that when I got to college. Are there any specific books that uh, left a deep impression at this early stage? Virgil's Aeneid was originally very appealing to me. I also think Salus Bellum Catalini, we read a portion of that in my third year, and that was a really appealing text to me. But for a while, actually, I didn't really know what my specialty was going to be. I didn't really think about things that way. And so it took me a while to figure out that Roman historiography was what I ultimately wanted to do. Well, let, let's move on to graduate studies. Um, maybe one good way to approach uh, this question would be to tell us more about some of the most important experiences you've had while studying the classics at the uh, graduate level. Yeah, so I, I first got a master's degree. In part, I did that because I didn't have as much Greek. I had decided fairly late that I wanted to do Greek. And so I didn't have an amazing amount of Greek when I went to graduate school. So I did a master's at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and then I transferred for a PhD at Duke University. It was actually when I was at Buffalo that a, a couple of things that ended up being rather important to me happened. One was I decided I took a historiography class in the history department, and I thought it was fascinating. And from that, I decided, you know, this is, I think, what I want to work on. I thought it was most interesting and also allowed me to connect ancient and modern in ways that have been very interesting to me. The second was I had an opportunity to be a teaching assistant for 
a large world history class that was required of all undergraduate students. The first semester was from the Big Bang to 1500, and the second semester was from 1500 to the present. So it was, you know, textbooks and various other readings and so forth. And I went to a college that had the kind of distribution requirement system. So you just pick and chose all your different things that you had to take. You know, a humanities class you had to take, but you could choose whichever humanities class you wanted to do and so forth. So this was my first opportunity to take a class that was, or well, to TA for a class that was required of everybody who went to the school and that went in a very broad survey kind of way discussing various uh, issues. And I thought it was one of the greatest educational experiences of my life. I learned what the Meiji Restoration was. I learned uh, this. I read the Social Contract and f- figured out who Rousseau was. I, I learned what the Warsaw Pact was, and so forth. And by the end of this, I remember thinking, "How could I have gotten through college without being forced to take a class like this?" I knew so little about so much because of the fact that I was given this kind of choose-your-own-adventure curriculum, and I felt like when I was eighteen, I can't really be blamed because I made some bad choices, and so I. I saw that TAing for this was this really wonderful opportunity. For me, it was just amazing. Let's now slowly turn to the book. Um, Tell us um, why you wrote the book. And uh, tell us also what role um, Irving Babbitt uh, played in your argument. Um, And and before you answer this uh, question, um, let me point out very quickly here that uh, Irving uh, Babbitt uh, lived from 1865 to 1933, and uh, that he taught uh, comparative literature at uh, Harvard from 1894. And he was also one of the leaders of uh, New Humanism, uh, an intellectual movement that, that became very important um, between 1910 and 1930. Yeah, I would say the, the most direct cause of writing the book was something that Uh, relates to my previous book. I had written a previous book about the relationship of classical studies in the United States and the culture wars of the 1980s and 1990s uh, in the U.S. And as part of that book project, I had read a great deal about the role of classics in American higher education from the 17th century all the way to the present. One chapter is a kind of brief examination of the role of classics in American higher education from the 17th century all the way forward. And as part of my research for that chapter, I kept on seeing the name of this guy named Irving Babbitt, who was listed as a kind of prominent critic of the direction in which universities had headed starting in the 19th century, and who was a defender of the classics. But that's pretty much all they said about him. But I saw his name over and over again, to such an extent that I decided, you know, I ought to read something by this guy. I guess he was an important thinker. So I took this book called Literature and the American College, Essays in Defense of the Humanities, which he wrote in 1908, or was published in 1908, out of the library and read it. And to my surprise, I think it's the most powerful critique of the American university movement that's ever been written. And I recognize, even though it's an outdated, I was from 1908, so it's obviously outdated in certain respects, I realized this guy's a first-rate thinker, and I think I want him to be the linchpin of my next book. And so I wanted to write a book that was an argument for the humanities that was partly based on a, a historical understanding of what the humanistic tradition actually is. Um, and then also to reinforce the value of Babbitt's ideas, or at least I should say a modified version of Babbitt's ideas. 
Okay. Well, now it's really time to dive into the book um, and its argument. Give us an overview of your argument. Um, and um, it would be great if you could also emphasize the second uh, chapter where you give us an overview of the humanistic tradition more generally. I try to argue in the first chapter of the book that although these modern arguments for the humanities are well-intentioned, they're not that persuasive. And I contended in the first chapter that they're not that persuasive in part because they're actually not linked to the historical humanistic movement, that they make these arguments that have nothing to do really with the history of the humanities, or that they don't really understand the history of the humanities. So I wanted to unearth the history of the humanistic tradition from Roman antiquity all the way to the present to get some sense of what it is that the humanistic tradition has been, and then how an understanding of that may influence the best kinds of arguments that we can make moving forward. And so one thing I try to stress in my second chapter, which is an examination, as you suggest, of the humanistic tradition in its entirety, is that the humanistic tradition is actually more complex and variegated than people recognize. That it meant one thing in Roman antiquity, it meant something different, albeit related, in the Renaissance, and then it changed um, in the 19th century, in the mid-19th century, to mean what it means today, which is a sort of grab bag of disciplines, mostly but not entirely related to the study of language, that are easiest to define by their absence. They're what's left in the university when you take out vocationalism, you take out the social sciences, you take out the natural sciences, and you take out the fine arts. That's sort of what's left with uh, as far as the humanities are concerned. And so I try to trace this understanding and how it changed over time. But one thing I think that's really important is this suggestion that to humanists, from Roman antiquity forward, in some senses, the goal of the humanities is to make one a better person. That this is more important, it seems to me, in the Renaissance than in uh, antiquity, but the idea that the study of literature or study in general can make you a better person seems to me a kind of through line for the humanistic tradition, going all the way back to antiquity, revivified in the Renaissance. This is what stood out in my reading of the book. Um, you describe the ancient and Renaissance views on the humanities, and uh, what results is something like this. Um, it's a vision of humanities that is not vocational, and it's also not utilitarian. Instead, it's, it's concerned with the individual. And um, it also has to do with what you call the transmission of wisdom, as well as foreign languages. So that is the final direction that, that we get from the book. Um, that's what the humanities really are according to you. Uh, and I'm bringing the ancient and Renaissance views together here, but uh, tell us a little bit more about the differences between them as well. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are differences, as I highlight, between ancient views of education and Renaissance views. And one thing that I highlight in the book is that for a thinker such as Cicero, who really is the coiner in some senses of, of the humanities, um, the humanities was actually all encompassing and there was no distinction between the humanities and the liberal arts. He saw the two things as the same. Whereas the Renaissance humanists, they split off the humanities to be a portion of the liberal arts, but not the entire thing. So there is a little bit of a 
difference or a major, I would say, change in emphasis. But yes, I think all of those aspects are important to um, this understanding. And I think one thing that you mentioned that seems very important and that's something that I underscore in the book is that there was always a value, a very high value placed on content. The idea that particular works of literature could actually lead to moral improvement was very important to ancient understandings of elite education and Renaissance understandings of elite education. So they all forced on students a curriculum of substance. For the Romans, that meant largely uh, Homer's Iliad and Virgil's Aeneid, along supplemented with other possible uh, readings. For the Renaissance, it meant engagement with Greek and Roman masterworks more generally uh, as well. But they they believed that there was a power in individual works that if read seriously and contemplated seriously, they had wisdom in them. And as a result, they could lead people to lead better lives. Now, some of these thinkers do adopt a somewhat rigid approach to the humanities. Uh, on pages 46 and 47 here, uh, you mentioned uh, Leonardo Bruni, uh, who lived between 1370 and uh, 1444, he thought that people should only read classical authors. Uh, so that's uh, slightly rigid there. Uh, and also at this point um, in the conversation, we, we have a sense of what this tradition consisted of. Um, and now let's discuss the challenge that emerges. Uh, there is a scientific gaze that gradually imposes itself. Um, and it asks that the humanities be justified as a field of study. My sense is that this is the part that you don't like. Uh, the scientifically oriented demand for justification, the, the emphasis on utilitarianism, practicality, vocational usefulness, uh, more generally, the, the sort of emphasis on skills. Uh, the key issue, again, in my reading of your book, is that you prefer a defense of the humanities that is not dependent on this type of positioned justification, this type of scientifically oriented justification. And this is where Babbitt becomes very important in your book. So tell us more about how this all fits together. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing that may be useful for your listeners to know is that in early American higher education, all the way to the mid-19th century, the curriculum was very different from the way that the curriculum looks today at the vast majority of schools, in which um, virtually all classes with some exceptions as you get into the 19th century, but virtually all classes were prescribed. They were acquired of all students in the same order. And that Latin at the elite schools, Latin and Greek were acquired for entrance. They were originally the only things you needed to know. So there was a very strong humanist conception of education based on the 
betterment of the individual. Character development is a chief issue associated with it. And this follows, in some senses, what you're suggesting with Bruni, which is, you know, you can study arithmetic, but don't do too much of it. You can study the sciences, but don't do too much of it. The key focus is is making yourself a better person, and you'll do that through the humanities. And by that, he means the classical humanities, Latin and Greek, as you suggest, a very kind of rigid and narrow kind of curriculum based on classical masterworks. Throughout American history, that conception of education was criticized, in many cases heavily criticized, by people who didn't really understand why are you doing this? Why force people to learn Latin and Greek in order to go to college in America? Why should they have to do this exactly? Why should there be so much focus on the humanities, the classical humanities, and not on other subjects? Other subjects were taught, mathematics and so forth, um, Hebrew and so forth. But why so much focus on the classics? And so especially as the scientific revolution continues, there's a kind of peculiarity about the fact that the humanities dominate American higher education. So there's a push to try to change the curriculum. And ultimately, this succeeds, as I talk about in the late 19th century, in the so-called Battle of the Classics, when a generation, the first generation in the second half of the 19th century, tries to change the basis of American higher education from what had previously been based on the humanities, the classical humanities and theology. And they want to reorient American higher education around the sciences and the scientific method. That what goes along with that is the curriculum that fits the sciences, which is the choose your own adventure curriculum, which is knowingly established on the basis of free market economics and social Darwinism, because you have to recognize 1859 is Darwin's origin of the species. So there's a kind of mania for Darwin that happens at the same period. Babbitt comes along in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, and he offers a very powerful critique of the intellectual, the philosophical justifications for that model of education, suggesting that there is a complete movement away from humanism, the perfection of the individual, and instead what he calls humanitarianism, but what we might actually call pseudo-humanitarianism, because he wasn't opposed to humanitarianism. It wasn't like he was against altruism. He was against a kind of pseudo-humanitarianism. The idea being, as far as he was concerned, that human beings are by nature good. He gets this from Rousseau, who he sees as a sentimental naturalist who's opposed to humanist wisdom. That human beings are by nature good, and therefore you don't need to perfect the individual. That that shouldn't be the proper focus of an education. Instead, the focus should be making the world a better place. Right? So you should improve society. The real struggle in human for human beings is not the struggle, internal struggle, to be a good person rather than to be a bad person. But the real struggle is between human being and society. And to Babbitt, that's what motivates this curriculum, the choose-your-own-adventure curriculum. Everyone can pick whatever they want because apparently their own natural inclinations are fantastic. They'll naturally choose what's perfectly suitable to them, and they don't need to improve themselves and learn from the past. They need instead to learn how to improve the material conditions of the world. Now, Babbitt wasn't opposed to the idea of improving the material conditions of the world, but he thought that if there's no focus on character development, there's no focus on improving the self. How are you actually going to know that you're really improving the world rather than enriching yourself or making yourself more powerful and so right. forth? If we could pause there just for a moment, um, I, I wanted to unpack this idea of uh, 
humanitarianism just a little bit. You, you talk about this on page uh, 173 of the book. So for him, for Babbitt, he rejected what you call here, uh, or what you describe him calling it a, uh, a short-sighted, all-encompassing devotion to, to humanitarianism. And more specifically, there are two strains of this. One is the scientific naturalism. And the other one is the sentimental naturalism. Uh, and that's the one. The sentimental is the one that he associated with uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm -hmm. um, so these are naturalisms mm -hmm. and at the same time, humanitarianisms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So could you maybe just disentangle that or, or unpack a little bit this? Yeah. This what what makes it humanitarian, these two movements? Okay, great. So um, that's a great question. It's complex because Babbitt's thought is complex, and he's also not a very easy uh, writer to read. But nevertheless, let me do the best that I can. First, it seems to me that it's important to recognize what Babbitt saw as a kind of humanist wisdom that he recognized not only in classical antiquity, but also in Christianity, also in Confucius, also in Buddhism, also in Hinduism, in a number of different uh, uh, spheres or different sorts of civilizations. He believed that one was a humanist, even if you're not strictly speaking, a part of the historical humanist movement in the West, you're a humanist if you have this conception of human existence. And he calls this dualism. And the idea of dualism, a human dualism, is the idea that human beings have both higher and lower potentialities. We all do. We all are capable of doing good things, selfless things, things for other people, but we're also capable of great selfishness. And so he believed that it was part of humanist wisdom to read great works that talk about the human condition in its most profound way in order to uh, help the imagination of students so they could live up to their higher potentialities and tamp down their base potentialities. This is what he saw as dualistic. Now, as far as naturalism is concerned, he also called this monism. By monism, he meant not a dualistic conception of human existence, but rather a monistic one, one based on one imperative alone. For Rousseau, or the Romantic movement, this means everyone has naturally good inclinations. And therefore, all you need to do is embrace your natural inclinations and all will be well, right? So he sees this as monistic because there's no fight within the individual uh, being torn in two different directions, right? So that's one element of it. He also sees, and this is somewhat counterintuitive, but I think if you think about it, it makes a certain amount of sense. He also sees the scientific outlook as monistic as well, because he believes that, again, the focus isn't on free will and the fight within the individual, but rather studying the human being in the same way that you might study a slug or another animal, right, about their impulses as well. It's rather than sort of their decision-making and so forth, it's rather about their impulses. Um, and so he sees this as monistic as well. And so he sees for both of these groups, both the sentimental naturalist and the scientific naturalist, the chief fight for a human being is not the internal fight between good and bad within the individual, but rather between the human being and society. And so they're monistic in that regard as well. So they look outside the individual to improve the conditions uh, in which human beings find themselves. Babbitt himself was not opposed to improving the conditions in which people find themselves. What he was opposed to was a kind of curriculum that completely neglected 
the humanist focus on the internal struggle to be a good person for the external struggle about improving the material conditions of life. That's what, what he saw as the problem. If, if one thinks of a humanitarianism, or if one thinks of the humanities as, as a method of extracting something from the world, it seems that these two other approaches... Uh, the scientific and the sentimental do not extract from the world what he is looking to extract. And from what you said there, it seems that it, it seems that the humanities are about it's about the soul. So what one extracts is sort of nourishment for the soul. So the humanities can provide that in ways that these two other approaches cannot. So so that's that's partially what, what he seems to be talking about. So, so I wanted to zoom in and look more specifically at this this nourishment, this content um, that is supposed to somehow feed the soul. But before we get to that point, I just wanted to ask: I mean, isn't that a, I mean, isn't that a bit oversimplified? Um, like, if one thinks about the about the sentimental approach, mm-hmm. why is that not about the soul, and why is that not something where content is provided, and why is that not nourishing in that way? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question, and it seems to me that in different contexts you'd have different answers. But I think the idea is that if you are going to presume that people are naturally good, that in some senses you can avoid their souls because you don't have to worry about moral education because they're already perfected. People are perfected by nature, and therefore the chief problem in the world is that material conditions are not set up right. That's what you have to worry about. So then the focus ends up being on improving the material conditions of the world, um, and I guess kind of uh, enjoying one's own naturally good impulses. In some senses, that means, I think, that you're not really dealing with soul crafting in the same way that you would be if you recognize, I think, a more serious vision of human existence, which is that we are capable of great good, but we are also capable of great evil. And it is important when we become adults to try to be good people. It's a constant struggle. We all fail in many instances, but it's actually a worthwhile project. But if you have a curriculum that says, take whatever you want, take whatever classes you want, in some senses, you're denying the value of works from the past to give you some sense of what might be answers to life's great questions. And you instead say, ah, just Go along with your own impulses. They're naturally good. Who are we to tell you what you should study and so forth? All of this, it seems to me, is, first of all, very counterintuitive. But second, it seems to me, a direct challenge to the notion that we can actually learn from the past at all, really. That's what our curriculum is essentially saying, that content does not matter. And I think that that's just not true, because it seems to me that some works speak more profoundly to the human condition than other works do. Now, there's not going to be a complete consensus as to what that list is and so forth, and so different colleges should come up with different things. But at the same period of time, I don't think it's true that any work is as good as any other work for trying to figure out what the nature of the human condition actually is. Are you telling me that the little notes that I jot down every day uh, are not as good as Plato? (laughs) 
Well, everything I've ever written is not as good as Plato, so you don't have to worry about your little notes. Um, you know, my book isn't as good as Plato either. But at the same period, I should also stress that this was important for Babbitt, and I think this is important for me too, and any serious contemporary educator, which is that that does not mean you have to put these authors on a pedestal as purveyors of great wisdom, and therefore their ideas cannot be improved upon in any way, shape, or form. We have to allow people to think critically about these works. Um, we have to allow them to take in and possibly even reject or modify these great works for their own personal conditions. So it's not as if we have to just sit down and passively say, oh, Plato was so smart. I'm going to think whatever Plato thinks. That's not a, a serious approach to education. Rather, I think students should, in a humanistic classroom, should be given different profound approaches to the human condition and life's great questions and should choose for themselves what they actually think uh, are the answers to life's great questions. So it's an active discovery for the student rather than a kind of passive acceptance of the the, the greatness of other writers. Um, so in other words, to, to keep uh, my example here of my, my little notes that I jot down versus Plato. So, so what you're talking about is that this, this approach to content is one where the content provides a certain amount of friction that helps one arrive at certain conclusions. But so so we're not just there to passively receive this knowledge and just memorize it and keep it in our heads. Right. Uh, we are there to engage with this. And, and perhaps you're also suggesting that people would gain more in terms of this friction, right? They would gain more by engaging with Plato versus my notes. Right. Right. Now, I haven't seen your notes, so it seems to me that it would be hasty for me to suggest that, that they are not on the, on the league, in the League of Plato un, under the right. circumstances. I really but, should right. no, take but a I look just, at them. Right. I just wanted to kind of pinpoint, again, the, this specific thing that you're calling for, right? And, and I want to zoom in more and look at this content a little bit more. Now, the way Babbitt fits here is that uh, I feel that he's sort of a bridge for you, right, between that old way of looking at the, at the humanities that we have lost uh, because he he tried to recover some of these things uh, and put a sort of uh, a more uh, 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 modern spin on them. Um, he he really, in many ways, he sounds like uh, someone who who's living now. In many ways, although in other ways, you also point out that he's actually very problematic. There's also <laughs> all kinds of problematic things about about his writings, right? right. So let, let's zoom in and look at this content idea a little bit more. A couple of words that that float around when when in the text here in your book, uh, when you talk about this this quest, this humanist quest, and this content is that this is about the good, this is about the true and the beautiful. This is on page one seventy three. Um, you also talk about this this idea of the, you know the wisdom of all ages um, can be accessed through this method, uh, but again, only if we adopt a certain idea of this content that has a certain amount of coherence that include. So again, as soon as we select that content, we have made a judgment. So so we cannot have the content without. This judgment, and this is where I think you push against some of the more more postmodern views on 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 uh, canon creation, um, the kind of skepticism and questioning that goes on there. You say uh, needs to be put on hold at least for a little bit, so that something can come together and coalesce into 
this type of content that is beneficial because it provides us this friction that we can use to build ourselves. But now that we're deep into this discussion, let me uh, bring out my criticism here, my critical perspective. I'm interested to, to hear what you'll say about this. Um, so there, I, I feel that there are some internal tensions here uh, in terms of this project. So uh, if we say two things, if we say that uh, one needs to to make a judgment to put together this content to decide what it is, mm-hmm. and if one says at the same time that this can be flexible, that, that anything can be chosen, right? Uh, but doesn't doesn't that dilute the whole th- thing then? Because, uh, for instance, you pointed out about, you know, well, if you take my example, right, my notes versus Plato, I mean, obviously, you know, a group of professors are not going to choose my notes. Right. Uh, but comic books, I mean, that it's a possibility, right? I mean, th- that could be a judgment, right? Yeah. So, so it seems that there is some kind of a um, some kind of a vague line somewhere that we're dancing around a little bit. I don't necessarily feel a strong and clear commitment to where that line is. Broadly speaking, the trend here seems to be towards the Latin and Greek works, uh, towards the Things that traditionally have been seen as classics, uh, but then when when that's kind of presented, it, it's at the same time denied that oh no, well other things can can go along. We can you can put other things into this content, right? So so what what is the line then? Right. So it seems to me that that's a great question um, because I think it gets at something, but I think that it's important for us to to recognize what it is it gets at and what it doesn't get at. And I okay. think that one thing that I'm trying to argue is that we should actually try to offer a humanistic curriculum of substance that's based on what we consider masterworks. And by that, I don't mean that they're not in comic book form, because I take your point that there could be a comic book masterwork. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But at the same period of time, I do believe, and and here I, I base some of my ideas on Babbitt's, on the notion that the most profound reflections on the human condition in works of literature and philosophy and so forth, not only get at the particular elements of the society in which they were created, but they also speak more broadly and in almost a universal sense of what it means to be a human being regardless. And so Babbitt was really interested in a kind of omniculturalism that suggested that all human traditions, although they're all simultaneously different, they are also simultaneously the same. And so that possibly the greatest works for individual traditions actually speak to some element of our common humanity. So again, yes, there has to be a choice that's made. And that does mean that there are different possible choices that could be made. But that doesn't mean everything goes. That doesn't mean that you can choose anything and you can choose it on the basis of um, any reason. Rather, the choice has to be made on what faculty members believe are actually the best conduits for humanistic wisdom, for students to think about the nature of the human condition and possibly for character development. There could be different answers to that, but that's what the text should do. Babbitt came up with a way of making humanism omnicultural. And suggesting, even though he was really interested in East versus West, so he overlooks various traditions, but we don't need to do that. But he is interested in the ways in which all human traditions, by virtue of being human, are simultaneously different and the same. And that suggests that all human traditions have added to this wisdom of the ages, as Burke called it, and that we can see possibly 
answers to how we ought to live our lives through looking at various traditions and various great writers from those different traditions about what they perceive to be the nature of the human experience. Babbitt thought that if you actually study that seriously in a, in a very omnicultural or at least multicultural way, you will obviously see differences between these societies, not suggesting uh, that they're all the same or something like that, but you will see serious overlaps in the way that they suggest you ought to live your life and that students should look at those overlaps and recognize that there that might tell you something about the way different societies have conceived in the same way the best way to live. Okay. Uh, we're going to run out of time here very quickly. I, I did want to segue a little bit to what you're working on now, and I want to ask you about your book recommendation separately. So yeah, has this uh, is this it for this part of the project? Are you working on something different now, or are you still working on these issues? So, um, it's somewhat related, but also somewhat different. Right now, I'm working on an edited collection of the letters of Irving Babbitt and Paul Elmer Moore, who were the two leading lights of the so-called new humanistic movement. Um, those letters are available only in the archive of Harvard and also at Princeton, because Babbitt taught at Harvard. And, and for some of his career, Paul Elmer Moore, his uh, best friend, taught at Princeton. And so they've never been published. And so I wanted to publish those letters because I think that the new humanistic movement is one of the most important movements of American literary and social criticism of the 20th century um, and provide an introduction to it and uh, and so forth. Um, so that's what I'm working on. It's sort of related to this project, but it's more specifically focused on the new humanism. Okay, great. We'll hear more about Babbitt in your uh, book re recommendation. So for this part of the conversation, uh, again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.